and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. Over the July 4th weekend, there was a very thought-provoking article in Salon Magazine. The title was, He's on a Mission from God. So today, we're going to sit down with the author of that piece, Frederick Clarkson. We're going to talk about the article and, more broadly, his perspective on State Senator Mastriano's campaign for governor. Frederick Clarkson, welcome to my kitchen table. Well, thanks for having me at the kitchen table. So you made a, a bit of a splash on the 4th of July with a piece that I encourage listeners to read, and I'm sure many listeners uh, have read it was in Salon, and it was about uh, State Senator Mastriano. But uh, before we get into that, uh, maybe folks should learn a little about your background, because you're not a Pennsylvanian. No, I'm not. I've been there, but I've never lived there. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been doing research and writing about, uh, about the religious and political right for about four decades now. Lived and worked in Washington for many years. And, uh, but these days, I've been, I wrote a book called Eternal Hostility, Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And I edited another book called Dispatches from the Religious Left. But for a number of years now, I've worked for a Boston area think tank and social justice center called Political Research Associates, uh, which, uh, has focused on uh, the anti-democratic right, uh, for many years, uh, publishes a quarterly journal called The Public Eye. And, uh, so I've had this peculiar career of studying anti-democratic, anti-human rights kinds of organizations, ideas, and players, which surprises me to this day that that was my uh, life's trajectory. Well, I mean, you have me curious now. So, uh, I mean, what we we have a lot of student listeners, for example, we have listeners uh, of all stripes, but I mean, what did did you set out to do? Uh, Because this is a unique uh, niche to find yourself in. Well, I, I'm not, not sure I immediately set out to do anything in particular. It was uh, it was the 70s, uh, which was really sort of the extension of the 60s, you know. And uh, I read and wrote a lot of poetry back in the day. But I went to Washington D.C. to work on world hunger kinds of issues, uh, which I did. Uh, but while I was there, the uh, uh, the Reagan administration came to town, and uh, with it, it brought what we then called the new right. And Washington D.C. and certainly I had never seen anything like it before. And a number of investigator projects uh, uh, captured my attention, and I've kind of never stopped. So, well, when, when we use this term religious right, I don't know, maybe perhaps uh, the listeners have other um, terms they'd prefer, but how would, how would you characterize this? Well, I realize, it, that, I realize that's a fairly open-ended question, <laughs> uh, uh, Roger, but it is. What? It, it's large. <laughs> I mean, to, so, so let, let, let's back up. Uh, I, our discussion is primarily looking at this through a political lens. Sure. But for better or worse, more than half of our country generally doesn't vote. So, right. but why, why don't we look at this primarily through the political lens in terms of folks uh, being active in local politics all the way through national politics? Well, sure. I think one of the things that's most helpful for people to know, regardless of exactly what we call the religious right, the Christian right, or many other things, and that is that, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, they were politically on the ropes. 
they were a minority. They, uh, there was the sexual revolution. There was women's liberation. There was all kinds of stuff going on that which they didn't understand and uh, and violently disagreed. But uh, along came this theological movement called Christian Reconstructionism. They had what they called a biblical worldview. And uh, they realized it was going to take a long time to implement that, but they had a strategy that uh, became the basis of what we now call the religious of the Christian right. And that is the idea that, uh, as you were saying uh, at the beginning, Ari, that, you know, you know, maybe 50% of, of the of people vote at the farther down the electoral ladder you go from president, you know, to state legislatures, to city council races, and so on. And particularly if it's a midterm or an off year, the lower level of voter participation. And then when you get into party primaries, the numbers get pretty small. And they recognize that. And so they said, well, you know, we've got enough people in our churches. If we turn them out, we can swamp Republican primaries. And Republicans tend to be very party loyal more than Democrats or, and more consistent voters than Democrats. So they, we can build a power base from there. And that's exactly what they did. And they've continued to do to the point where they've become the best organized and most powerful faction in American politics. So if I understood correctly, I just want to unpackage that because generally anything I've seen is that year on year going back five decades, the number of Americans who are regularly going to a worship service, whether that's church or otherwise, has gone down. So when you reference that the 60s and 70s, their back was up against the wall, that was a little bit of a surprise because I would imagine more Americans were attending church then than, 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 than currently. True, but when we say churchgoers, we don't always mean political conservatives. Very, and, very strong uh, point. And it was certainly true then. It was the uh, it was the leaders of uh, mainline Protestantism and uh, Pope John Paul, or rather Pope uh, John the Twenty Third, Catholics and Reformed Jews who were the most important leaders of the anti-war movement. And uh, religiously, things looked very different at that time in in terms of the, what the center of religious culture looked like. So, uh, as we've looked at, at the last several decades of this, are there certain denominations, Christianity, that have been particularly at the, the tip of the spear? Yes, uh, certainly. There was a, a plan to systematically take over conservative denominations, uh, like the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, and there was a, there was a schism in in Presbyterianism, where what's now the Presbyterian Church in America broke from the mainline Presbyterian Church. And there was a lot of systematic effort to, uh, which I always say, degrade the mainline Protestant uh, churches in order to make them less of a factor at the center of American uh, cultural and, and religious life. Uh, those strategies worked. And, um, but meanwhile, there was the Pentecostal movement, which was theologically very amorphous. <laughs> and these are for folks who don't know, these are the folks who recognize them, they raise their hands in the air when they pray, and they're very distinctive. And in those days, you know, they were considered fringe. They're religious outliers. But where we started out talking about Christian Reconstructionism, this was like a very conservative, systematic uh, theology uh, rooted in conservative Presbyterianism, unlike the very experientially oriented uh, Pentecostals. And so there was an intention to, to reconcile differences and to graft the systematic theology onto the experiential Pentecostalism. And over a series of theological uh, discussions and uh, compromises that were made, uh, they succeeded in doing that. So, the, the Pente Pentecostals and uh, what are called the Charismatics, who are similar, have become politically animated. 
and that politics are at the center of their religious identity uh, in a way that uh, didn't, didn't exist a few decades ago. Now, you alluded a, a while back about the Catholic Church and the anti-war movement, but uh, through this lens that you just mentioned, and I suppose more recently, uh, can, can you speak to the Catholic uh, Church? Well, sure. The Vatican II generation eventually died off and more conservative popes came in, appointed more conservative bishops, and uh, the church hierarchy became less sort of progressive social justice minded and more concerned about preserving doctrine and also decided that abortion uh, and, uh, and homosexuality were going to be at the core of, uh, of their fight within the culture. And so the kind of culture, what we call the culture wars centered around those issues have driven a lot of our politics. And perhaps most remarkably uh, to me, and that is that Protestants and Catholics, as most listeners know, uh, didn't get along for hundreds of years. And, and there were tremendous efforts at ecumenical dialogue, and most of Christianity's figured out a way to get along, but there were still elements of conservative evangelicalism, particularly the Baptists, that were still in physical conflict in some parts of the world with the Catholics. So I remember back in the 80s, uh, when the anti-abortion movement was getting going, and I would see events where there'd be one Catholic prelate you know, in sitting on a sitting on a dais very uncomfortably with uh, various kinds of uh, uh, very expressive fundamentalists and uh, charismatics. And, uh, uh, you know, it was Cardinal O'Connor of New York, who was usually the one. But uh, it took time. It took uh, a long series of theological dialogues and uh, uh, agreeing to disagree on certain things to find sufficient common ground and common cause among people who had been historic adversaries and suspicious of each other, dubious of the authenticity of each other's Christianity. So in 2009, there was a, a manifesto called the Manhattan Declaration that uh, was signed by 150 sitting Catholic prelates and many leaders of American evangelicalism and the Christian right, and that they were, could agree on three things. And that was life, marriage, and religious freedom. And before you know it, the websites of all the Christian right groups emphasize those three things. The pro-life secretary to Catholic bishops focused on those three things. And uh, Mitt Romney, in his acceptance speech in the Republican Convention 2012, emphasized those three points, especially because he was a Mormon who was you know, viewed with some suspicion in these quarters, that uh, he was speaking directly to them. That's how central those ideas were and continue to be. Well, there's, there's a lot to digest, and I'm learning a lot, and I'm sure listeners are too, so thank you. You mentioned 2009. Let's take a few years back. I remember in 2004, the Bush-Cheney re-election, there was very much a concerted effort. I don't believe this happened in Pennsylvania, but elsewhere in other purple states to have ballot initiatives around issues of same-sex marriage. And then in 2006, front and center in Pennsylvania was Senator Santorum's re-election. So, if you could talk a little about you know, the more more recently, the last uh, the twenty years, and how all these themes that we've begun this discussion with uh, morphed into electoral politics. Well, as you just described, it, they were already in electoral politics, uh, but uh, the I think the movements evolved. The Catholic bishops and the conservative evangelicals knew that the Supreme Court one day was going to rule for marriage equality. Uh, I remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, saying, "Yeah, we were going to do it, but the time wasn't quite right." And then finally, the time became right. So they already had Roe v. Wade, and they weren't able to overturn it. And they, you know, pretty soon they had Obergefell, and it seemed like they had lost. So, but the, the long game, 
the long game they had for electoral politics was still building. They had figured out how to register, you know, identify and register their people to turn voters into activists, activists into candidates, candidates into office holders. And they steadily built for power. So the origin of the, of the Dobbs case was legislation in Mississippi and, you know, used to be a Democratic stronghold, became a conservative Republican stronghold. There was a strategy to uh, take state legislative seats. And, you know, so there was a massive shift, you know, during the Obama era, you know, in Republic to Republican governorships, to Republican control of state legislative chambers, and not just Republican control, but more conservative and conservative Christian control of these things. So the kinds of legislation we were seeing with uh, anti-abortion legislation, chipping away at uh, aspects of, uh, of gay rights, this became the, the new method. The politics evolved despite the massive Supreme Court setbacks. And now we've seen the Dobbs case that's overturned Roe and Casey and is headed for other important uh, privacy uh, decisions uh, going back uh, farther. Okay, so I think this provides good, good context to take a look at your really insightful and thought-provoking piece about State Senator Mastriano and his gubernatorial campaign. So tell, tell listeners, how does, how does someone from Massachusetts come to focus? What, what, I mean, what was the genesis of, of this piece? Well, I'd been following a charismatic uh, movement called the New Apostolic Reformation uh, for some time, uh, which was, uh, um, this was this is the, the politicization of the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement I referred to earlier. And so, rather than there being traditional evangelical or Protestant denominations as we would normally understand them, uh, they thought that denominations were a problem and that religious doctrines were by and large a problem as obstacles to what they called the body of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom of God. They formed what they called prayer networks under uh, what they called the fivefold ministry, which are the offices of the church as listed in uh, the book of Ephesians in the Bible, which are, if I can remember them all, the apostle, prophet, the teacher, the evangelist, and one more. So the, uh, But the apostles and the prophets are the most important. So one of the interesting apostles is the apostle for Pennsylvania, a woman named Abby Abildness. And she actually is a part of and a leader in several international prayer networks. So she's quietly an extremely important religious leader, as far as I know, with no no, uh, seminary degrees or advanced training in those areas at all. But uh, she uh, receives direct revelations from God as do the other apostles and the prophets. And more than doctrines, it's the ongoing progressive revelations that guide their religious, their religiosity and very often their politics. So that leads that led, leads me into Pennsylvania because she, she was also the state leader for the state director of something called Project Blitz, which was a state legislative program produced by something called the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation. And uh, it was sort of the, the, the best thinking, uh, the learned experiences of conservative Christian activists, legislative speaking in the, in the state legislatures over the years. And they put together a bunch of model bills that were then introduced through members of state prayer caucuses. And uh, a number of bills were uh, introduced and perhaps even passed in Pennsylvania 
keeping in mind Abby Bildness was the state director. So she's running these big uh, conservative Christian prayer networks, and she's a legislative lobbyist in Harrisburg uh, moving this conservative Christian legislation. So I was aware of the state directors of Project Blitz. I broke a big story about that, and I'm looking at NIR and their overlaps at the same time which is what brought me to Pennsylvania politics and uh, because uh, Senator Mastriano had introduced some of the legislation. So if listeners understand correctly, what you're referring to is a, it's a formal legal entity. It sounds like beyond a nonprofit religious institution, there's, there's some other entity, if, if I'm understanding correctly. You mean when we're talking about the apostolic networks? Exactly. And, and I mean, I don't know if this, this, this project blitz, I, I wasn't familiar with it. Is that, that this is formal or it's more kind of ad hoc and kept somewhat quietly? Well, it's in both. other words, is this, this is a, this, this is a known advocacy campaign and folks are registered as lobbyists to, to for this or? I don't know if she's registered as a lobbyist or not, but, uh, but I can say she is the state director for uh, the state legislative campaign. And yeah, it's been going on for a while. I, I will send you some materials and, um, are there, are there uh, other, so, I mean, we've referenced, for example, Mississippi, which mm-hmm. I think Mississippi's politics are quite different than Pennsylvania's, but I mean, sure, are there, sure. are, is this an effort in 50 different state capitals or are there specific ones that this is grown organically or specifically are targeted? Well, it's probably a, a mix of both, like, like most things in politics. Uh, but uh, at last count, uh, there were about 35 you know, state legislative prayer caucuses that uh, had uh, state directors. I don't know if they're paid or volunteer. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, it's certainly all off book as far as they can make it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a national effort uh, with uh, nationally disseminated uh, manuals of model bills. And, uh, you know, state legislators can pick and choose uh, which bills they want to introduce and modify the models according to the state, state code uh, and so on. And what the politics, the occasion seem to call for. So it's also come out in, in recent days uh, that the last few years that private citizens are regularly worshiping with members of the Supreme Court with a handful of yes. justices. So is this an outcropping of that? Is it a parallel or this is a one of the same? Uh, as far as I know, it's entirely separate. You know, if you can speak broadly of the Christian right uh, and say, well, it's all the same thing, but but it isn't. This is a, this is a very specific thing. Uh, I believe that they were, the justices were praying with members of the uh, of the legal group Alliance for Defending Freedom, uh, which struck me as, as a conflict of interest uh, on its face since they were had a case before the court. Okay. So I, you know, I'm wrestling with, I don't want to give away because I want to encourage uh, our diverse listeners to, to read your piece and those that haven't, you know, they, they absolutely should. But there's a few different, there's three in particular proper nouns that were super intriguing that I had never seen before. So once again, I encourage listeners, I'm not giving anything away in this excellent Salon Magazine uh, article that Frederick's written, but the Jericho March in December 2020, obviously, we're all very closely watching the January 6th uh, uh, hearings. We understand a lot was happening. We're still learning everything that was happening in December of 2020. But I had never heard of this Jericho March. So if you could speak to that. Sure, it was organized by many of the same people who organized uh, January 6th. But it, there was a particular group that uh, was created. Uh, God gave two different Washington, D.C. Uh, Republican activists uh, the same vision of, of doing this thing, which was uh, uh, and called the Jericho March. And 
first we need to say, what do we mean by Jericho? I mean, Jericho is, is a, is a Jericho, battle of Jericho is a story in the Bible. Jericho is a city. And uh, an Israelite uh, general, Joshua, was uh, laying siege to the city of Jericho. And uh, God uh, wanted him to take the city and directed him to march seven times around the city, blowing shofars, which are the uh, carved out uh, uh, ram's horns that are used in uh, trump battle direction trumpets. And so they blew the shofars at the walls. And as the song goes, the walls came tumbling down. And the Israelite army came into the city and massacred all the inhabitants while carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, readers of the Lost Ark fans will recall, or Bible readers will recall, uh, that's, that's the chest where Ten Commandments given to God on Mount Sinai to Moses were being held. And that's uh, the idea of God's covenant was being carried forward with that army. So, what happened with the Jericho March? is that uh, religious figures uh, in, in Harrisburg, led by Abbey of Bildness, but in Washington, led by others, they marched around the Capitol, marched around the Supreme Court, marched around the Justice Department, blowing shofars. And this was after a rally with the religious leaders uh, doing fiery uh, speeches and the like. And it was sort of to set the stage for a religious justification, I, I think, for the things that happened on January 6th. So I think that segues into the next term that I had never seen um, that features prominently in your your excellent piece is the shofar army. Well, we discussed the shofars and approximately what what they mean. Different people in the in the broad uh, New Apostolic Reformation and the Christian right uh, sometimes mean different things when they talk talk about blowing shofars. For some, it's literally the breath of God, like in the case of Jericho, you know, blowing blowing something down. In other cases, it's to uh, it's to drive off uh, demonic spirits. There's always things going on in the spirit world at the same time as the physical world, and so this is a way that God's people can drive away the demonic spirits that are wreaking evil in the world. And um, in, in Jewish traditions, the, the shofar is still used in a ritual way on the high holidays, and has nothing to do with all this other stuff. And uh, this is a misappropriation of the, uh, of, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, religious use of the shofar, as far as Jews are concerned. So, what has happened is that there are groups of people around the country who are called upon for various events who know how to blow a shofar, either individually or as a group. And one of them calls themselves the Shofar Army. Uh, they're based in Northern Maryland, and they show they show up with uh, with Doug Mastriano at various events. And one member of the Shofar Army actually blew the shofar at the launch of his uh, gubernatorial campaign. That's a lot of process, and uh, it, just in, in the month of August, as we head into the uh, Jewish High Holy Days, uh, the shofar is also blown uh, in, in that month uh, leading up to. Now, speaking also of. Senator Mastriano, State Senate District, which does border uh, Maryland, the Patriot Arise Conference in Gettysburg. I was not familiar at all with this, but there's certainly also a lot of symbolism around Gettysburg. There was the Rudy Giuliani, quote unquote, hearing in Gettysburg. But what was this Patriot Arise Conference? That was a two-day national conference. Uh, I suspect it was mostly regional in terms of the participants. Uh, There were uh, candidates for statewide office from Pennsylvania and Maryland there. And uh, and I don't remember the names because they were they they were also rams in the primaries. But these were these were the far right choices. But but Mastriato was clearly the star. Uh, they did fundraising for him there. 
but this was a uh, patriots arise. So this meant uh, the most conservative kinds of patriots and patriot movement kinds of people you could think of, but they te- but they were also Christian patriots and uh, uh, sharing this kind of big uh, religious vision along with uh, well very conservative and often conspiracist notions of patriotism. So there were speakers who were uh, anti-vaccination uh, conspiracists, anti-tax conspiracists, anti-max conspiracists. I know it was a big issue for for Mastriano in Pennsylvania. And so it was two days of this stuff. It launched with uh, uh, the shofar army blowing the shofar, and uh, and it featured you know a speech by uh, by Doug Mastriano, but also you know Apostle Abby Abildness and other people out of the New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, one of them was a woman named uh, a prophet named uh, Julie Green, who uh, had traveled all the way from Iowa to be there. Because Mastriano had heard that she had made prophecies on her podcast about his candidacy. And so she has campaigned with him, including appearing at that conference a number of times now. And uh, I, I can't remember the exact wording of the prophecy, but uh, basically uh, she was saying that uh, God had told her that, uh, you know, Mastriano needs to keep the faith, he hasn't abandoned him. That uh, and uh, God is concerned about some of the issues that he's concerned about and carry on. So, Julie Green delivers uh, uh, this very short uh, message from God uh, wherever she can, which is, I guess, a candidate's way of saying that, you know, God's on my side. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I don't know that we have any prophecies that are made on this podcast, but uh, (laughs) as we look at the final 100 days of this historic campaign in Pennsylvania, these are incredibly unique themes, but I don't know necessarily that these are themes that are being discussed at kitchen tables around Pennsylvania. So I guess how, to what extent, based on all your reporting and your academic research, I mean, do you think that this is the final hundred days? In other words, of is the Mastriano campaign, in your opinion, I mean, are they leading with these issues? Is this really the core of their issues? Or is this something that's very much felt and believed in their heart, but they kind of keep it in their heart, so to speak, and they'll focus more on kitchen table issues? Well, I can't speak to everything that's in uh, in uh, Mastriano's heart, but I can say that the folks who believe these things believe these things and talk about them all the time. And um, that we can be sure of. And they're being organized in the classic ways that the Christian right is being organized. Uh, uh, a week or two ago, there, uh, the Family Research Council hosted a training for pastors and other church representatives at a church uh, in Bucks County, where they taught them all the ins and outs of how to help Mastriano uh, without violating their C- 501c3 tax exempt status, so there there's a a power base being built and organized in Pennsylvania, and the kinds of issues that were, have been concerned to uh, the Patriots Arise Conference and the other groups we've been talking about are here. You know, they were already here, and now they're being organized uh, in a in a political way that uh, is going to have lasting impact, uh, regardless of who wins uh, in November. Thank you again for this perspective and really encourage listeners to uh, uh, to read this excellent piece in Salon Magazine. But that was my final question is to what extent, regardless of what happens the first Tuesday in November, uh, do you think that this campaign and these themes are going to resonate heading into 2024 in Pennsylvania politics and then also, for that matter, in federal and non-federal races around the country? Yeah, I think the past is prologue in this case. We've seen since the rise of Donald Trump, the phenomenon of QAnon. We've seen the rise of the new apostolic reformation and reaching the highest levels of national politics and now the highest levels of state politics in Pennsylvania. 
And uh, I, th- I think it's really just the beginning. Donald Trump lost, but those movements are still there. And people should be on the lookout. You see some news probably about something called uh, the, the Reawaken America Tour, which has been a series of 15 conferences held in arenas and churches around the country led by Michael Flynn and uh, uh, Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, and Roger Stone and uh, and others, which is sort of a rolling organizing from the, from the insurrection. It's the ongoing revolt. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's well organized. I think the next one is uh, is in uh, Rochester, New York, in September. But uh, they may schedule some more between now and then. Well, all right. Well, a lot to digest there. Thank you so much for your time from from one Commonwealth, Massachusetts, to another. Uh, mm-hmm. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, papoliticalpodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week.